You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Hey, welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, if you think he's going to sit around as the world goes by, well, you're thinking like a fool, because in a case of do or die, dot, 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 it's Mr. Jeff McLaughlin. Ooh, I, I like that one. That's a, that's a good one. Yes, that's definitely me. It's definitely me this week, Bill. Oh, yeah? Why? Do I have another thing coming? No, you don't have another thing coming, nor do you have an electric eye, <laughs> um, but- no, but I'm the uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, no, I found myself for the last week living as if I was Neil from the Young Ones. A specific characteristic of Neil from the Young Ones. Now, I've already got Filthy. sort of hippy dippy tendencies lately. But what was Neil very well known for, especially in the episode Bored? Is a hippie. He hates machines. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that goes hand in hand with hippies, yeah. With being hippie, right? I also hate machines and let me explain why oh my god are you uh, mike pillow is that what you are we're gonna class no, action lawsuit against <laughs> all machines yes no it's not that kind of okay. machines it's the machines that are in my house so technically i guess it's not a machine but my furnace is technically a machine-esque okay. part machine-ish part machine-ish sounds like uh sean connery sean connery talking about our high school you're machine-ish huh <laughs> Money penny, look at him. He's got a micrometer. Shoot him. Now, my furnace now won't light. So I have to wait two weeks for the furnace guy to come and start my furnace. And it's it's getting chilly, Bill. It's well, getting chilly out. As of this date, yes. Uh, as our, we are recording, uh, I wouldn't panic just yet. But yeah, okay. I still have my, no, I'm not, I'm I still not have my air conditioner in the window at this point. Uh, yeah, I know how to warm up. We've had a couple of nights where it's been under 50 here. Okay. I've had to use my fireplace insert and like bake bread and make pizzas and stuff to heat the house up a couple of days. Oh, but wow, really? It's it's knowing that it's going to be a couple of weeks before the guy can come out and tell me like, oh, your furnace doesn't start. Yeah, I know it doesn't start. <laughs> I do the thing that homeowners do, which is go and look at 150 YouTube videos and about fixing a furnace or diagnosing a furnace or bump starting a furnace and none of them work. I always see those videos. You get the people with like, they got two or three ceramic plant pots there turned yeah. upside down with like right. four tea lights. He's like, yeah, I heat up my whole house with this. I'm like, oh, the devil's asshole. You're heating up your whole house with four tea lights. No, that's not the way it works. That's not that's the not, way that's it works. Not, that's not how it works. You, you, yeah, maybe you don't understand entropy. It's also not far enough in the year that I also have to do some more lawn work and cut my grass. So the same day that I go to test my furnace and the furnace will not light, I figure, well, I'll console myself by cutting the grass. My grass is pretty long. We've had a lot of days of rain. Yep. And my lawnmower won't start. No, no. So so I'm like, all right, it's probably dead battery. Tackle battery. The machines are right. acting up again. The machines, that's it. Blip, blip, blip. Oh, wow. Heavy. <laughs> I put a new battery in. Didn't fix it. I put in a new ignition switch today. I turned the key it kicked over and started. Ha ha! I turned it off. I told my son, hey, the lawnmower works now. The ignition switch was the was the thing. That was all I had to fix. You should go cut the grass now because it needs to be done. And now it won't start again. It won't huh? start. It's just like I hadn't changed the ignition switch. I don't know what I did right before, but it's wrong now. <laughs> and it's, it's one of those things where it just seems like when one thing goes, they all go. Right. Yep. As of this recording, I still have my air conditioner, one of them, in my window. I haven't pulled it out yet because that one takes a little bit of work. So I'm not going to actually be able to do that probably for like another two weeks. And we've already had days where I've woken up in the morning just like with my finger inching towards the furnace button. Like, no, no, no. Resist. Resist. There's no need to be putting the furnace on. 
But it's been cooler when I wake up in the morning than how I keep the house during the winter. It was like 67. I usually keep it at, as Bill and Ted like to say, 69, dude. We had a couple of days last week where it got it was under 60 in my house on Saturday morning. Ugh. It's cold. Oh, New Hampshire. It's chilly. New Hampshire. No, no. So I'm like, oh, let's throw the heat on. I got to test the furnace anyway. Went, changed the filter, did all that stuff, and no furnace, no light. Very frustrating. New Hampshire, live free or die of hypothermia. (laughs) All right, before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Bill. Do you have Twitter? I do not. I have it, but I've never tweeted, and I don't even know that it's still installed on my phone. I think I installed it when it first came out. Mm Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, this is neat. Well, 140 characters. Screw this. Yeah. And then never touched it again. Uh, I ha- I have twatted in the past, which I think is the past then tense. I'm not sure. I might have to censor that. Anyway, the little logo for Twitter is a bird because birds make tweet tweet noises. Did you know that that bird has a name? Like Bob or Frank or something? Or is it like the name of the bird it was the graphic was based on? The, the bird has a name. The mascot has a name. What is that bird's name? Ugh. All right, end of the show. Yep. Guaranteed to not get this one right. Uh Uh-huh. All right, but this is going to be the week beginning, November the 7th. And because I gave you such a tough trivia question, Jeff, I feel bad. I'll I'll let you go first this week. November 7th, 1962. Richard M. Nixon, neither president nor governor of California, utters his immortal phrase, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore, at his... Uh, press conference where he had just lost the governor's race for California right after losing two years earlier presidential race to John F. Kennedy. Wow. So two-time loser Nixon gives the business to the press and then starts his cunning plan to within 10 years take back the White House, take the White House and, and have it for two terms or almost two terms. Yeah, yeah. he ended up winning the White House uh, in the 1968 election, which was actually November 5th. Nixon beat Hubert Humphrey, who was Johnson's vice president. Uh, Johnson right. wasn't going to run again. And right. then 10 years to the day after Nixon said, they're not going to have Nixon to kick around anymore. 10 years later, not only does he win the presidential election, he wins it in a landslide because he was able to appeal to both sides, both liberals and conservatives. Yeah, he ended up winning like 18 million more popular votes than Senator George McGovern. Yeah, and that one—it was a landslide. He, he got his yeah, he kicked ass all over the. He did, and and ironically enough, it was I think like right around three years later at another press conference where he basically said, "Stop kicking me! Stop! <laughs> stop with the kicking! Stop kicking me around! Stop it! Stop! Stop! Stop with the kicking!" Because yep. he revealed to have been the mastermind behind the water Watergate break-ins. He got housed. He got mill housed. Yeah, he got housed. He got mill. He got mill housed. Yeah, yes. that's funny. Uh, yeah, Millhouse from The Simpsons was named after Nixon. That's the M and Richard M. Nixon, Millhouse. At least Nixon was able to appoint our best friend Elvis Presley as a drug czar. <laughs> Remember that? Drug agent. All right. All right, let's go to November 8th before we go into Nixon and Elvis <laughs> frenzy. <laughs> All right, November the 8th, 1895, Wilhelm Conrad Renchen makes his famous discovery, which is... X-rays. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he actually got the Nobel Prize in physics in 1901 for that bad, Larry. So he took his first X-ray of a human, and the next month he X-rayed his wife's hand, right? And when she (laughs) saw her skeleton for the first time, she exclaimed, I have seen my death. (laughs) Not to be overdramatic or anything, but that would probably raise some questions for me if I was William Conrad Renchen. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking at the picture. She didn't even bother to take her ring off, or she's got a big bulbous knuckle, one or the other. Yeah, you probably don't have to take anything off, It's especially when you're doing it testing-wise, right? Right, right, right. Nah, just leave it on. We'll see what we get. It's not like putting your hand in a microwave with a ring on and you get a bunch of sparkles. Oh, my God, dude. Didn't they used to have something like that in the uh, shoe stores? They did back in the late 1800s and early 1900s, you could go and get your feet sized and a dose of x-rays enough to give you cancer at your local department store where you could go to the shoe department and stick your foot with a new pair of shoes on. Mm -hmm. Well, a new shoe from a shoe pair of shoes on uh, inside and look through and wiggle your toes in real time as an x-ray bulb fired x-rays through your foot. 
Yeah, that's probably uh, not good for anybody. No, that's not good at all. And as I understand it, those machines leaked radiation like crazy. So it was like it killed a bunch of shoe sales people and made other people that worked at department store six. I, I'm pretty sure by like 19, I want to say 1925 to 1930, they were illegal. They were outlawed and had to be taken out. Boy, the turnaround at Fava is nuts. Yeah. Uh, you know what I remember? <laughs> Whenever I was about 22, I had possibility of having kidney stones. So I had to have like my innards x-rayed. The nurse comes in and she, after they took one set of x-rays, she comes in, she goes, okay, void. And I'm just looking at him like, I'm sorry, what? She's like, void. And void? I'm like, yeah, I, I feel the <laughs> yeah. same way. Especially I am this- staring into the abyss. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I feel the same way, especially this time of the year. Sure. She goes, uh, go pee. I'm like, oh, yeah, all right. I, I could do that. Why don't you say so? Because uh, I'm surprised. <laughs> you know what I'm surprised you didn't say? What? I have seen my death. <laughs> yeah, she wanted me to pee because she wanted to get a second look at my bladder once filled and once unfilled. And then I started bugging her. I was like, can I see the x-rays? And she's like, you want to see? The-? I was like, yeah. I want to know what my bladder looks like because up until now, I figured it's about the size of a walnut. I always have to pee. I've, I've never seen my insides before. Of course <laughs> yeah. I want to see them. What's I'm wrong with you? Very curious, yeah. When I broke my wrist playing soccer, I would ask for a cop. Can I have a copy? The, the, the doctor looks absolutely not. <laughs> oh, really? He's like, no, you can't have a copy. Oh, man. Yeah, I think that's why they don't give those out anymore yeah. like or x-rays either. Like You don't want to be like, look what I did. Yeah. See if you can beat my score. You know? <laughs> All right, let's go on to the ninth. November 9th, 1874. The Central Park Zoo hoax takes place. Central Park being in, of course, New York City. During this hoax, the New York Herald published a front page story claiming that a mass escape of animals from the, the Central Park Zoo had taken place, including a rhinoceros and like a Cape buffalo and hyenas and lions, and that a bunch of people were eaten or gored to death and that the governor shot and killed a lion and the like the mayor was fighting off animals and all this crazy stuff absolutely none of it was true right but it caused a i can't say it caused a sensation because i don't know that it did it had at the end of the story that it was all a fabrication but i guess people being like people are like my god there's animals everywhere yesterday and never read the whole story so what year was this uh, 1874. Oh, someone must have been like, Mildred, come out of the kitchen. Only for a minute now. Uh, uh, look out the window Good. and check to see if there's a giraffe or something. <laughs> Good heavens. See if the knickerbockers haven't been eaten by skunks. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, for people who finished the article, were like, oh, ha ha. It's a joke. Yeah. I guess I have to go back to the radium factory and paint watch faces until I die. <laughs> I uh, got I to gotta go have my feet x-rayed. Right, exactly. Quick hoist up the carriage let's go and look at the carnage around central park and there wasn't any i guess i'll just sit here in my easy chair and harumph this is a time where you know literary hoaxes like this weren't super uncommon edgar Allan poe did a bunch of them right um and there were other ones that made into the papers i guess eventually you run out of talking about you know corrupt politicians and garbage man strikes and other stuff Top and, hats. Uh, writers gonna be like, you know what? I I can't do another city council meeting, or I'm gonna I'm gonna go insane. Mm. So I'm gonna write about an animal escape, and the editor's like, whatever, just do what you want. Yeah, like I said, I, I, because of you know incidents like this, and then don't forget the moon bats, and then later on with the War of the World, you know, and all that kind of a panic. I think they basically kind of like had to dial it back because we found out that. People, by and large, are really silly and stupid. You know, <laughs> you may think, oh, no one's going to believe this. Everyone, Everyone's going to slap their thigh and think, oh, what a what a funny story that was. But no, by and large, people are very silly and believe a lot of different things. For me, like knowing the difference between a newspaper article and the immediacy of radio, mm-hmm. like with the War of the Worlds in 1938, is, is vastly different. At least... With the immediacy of radio and getting news like on the scene at that time, you're used to hearing like President McKinley's about to speak or whatever. Right. Whereas with a newspaper, it has to be written, edited, typeset, printed, delivered, opened, found, and read. So it's not telling you something that's happening right away. It's it's telling you something that happened yesterday. This is also 1874. It is 1874, yes. Yeah. 
you know, so somebody runs to the zoo and they and they find a policeman. They're like, "Where are the orangutans?" And the cop goes, "What are you talking about?" Mm-hmm. And they say, "Like the zoo, it's overrun with animals." I'm like, it's not. They're all behind that gate right there. But it said in the paper. Did you read the last line of the paper? No. <laughs> Unlike you know, 1938, where people think that the war is going on right now and put a soup pot on their head and hide in the basement. <laughs> Yeah, I'm looking at a picture of it right now because, you know, photography in the paper probably wasn't, you know, a big thing at the time. And there's this great picture of a guy just impaled by the uh, the tusks of an elephant. It's really kind of gory. <laughs> hey, Jeff, uh, mm-hmm. speaking of hoaxes and mass carnage and November the 10th, 1978, the movie Faces of Death is released. Uh, <laughs> you remember this? Uh, Movie? I mean, I remember getting on VHS in the eighties. Yeah, I, I saw it first on V. I didn't even know that these Mondo things were a cinema thing until way later in my life. Right. And I had no idea that Faces of Death had been, you know, sort of a, I guess, a grindhouse type movie. I think that's probably where they played. Yeah. You know, I don't imagine that this showed like at the mall cinema. No, no, no. I, I wouldn't think so you either. Know? Yeah, because um, well, it's it doesn't have an MPAA, so definitely would be a, a a grindhouse thing. I remember it was really like controversial and stuff like that. It's like banned in forty countries. Um, right. So, Faces of Death was a watch my fingers, my finger quotes here documentary, and it purported to show real graphic scenes of various ways that people died or violent acts. Most of it was bullshit. You know, there was a lot of newsreel stuff. Like, I remember there was a guy, like a protester that lit himself on fire, which is a little, you know, disturbing to watch. But, I mean, that's what the yeah. thing was supposed to be disturbing to watch. But the the there was a famous scene where, like, restaurant in some God knows what in country. Far-flung place, yeah. With, it was serving monkey brains. And yeah, the, and you had to beat the monkey to death at the table with yeah. little hammers. and yeah, yeah, I remember that. And everybody was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it was totally fake. And I'm I'm sure if we watched it again as adults, you would see it was a rubber monkey, you know? Yeah. And there was a, a significant percentage of, of Faces of Death was made up of, like, news footage of suicides. Mm-hmm. Or I remember the one where, they, like, there was an avalanche and they were pulling dead bodies out of cars in Austria or something where right. there had been an avalanche that had wiped out all these cars. But it was this stuff like the monkey brains part, the guy in the electric chair that wasn't really a guy in an electric chair. Oh, yeah. I that was, all of those really, that was really well. super, super fake, the electric chair one. Yeah. And like um, like I said, you see it as a teenager. You're like, oh, my God, I'm experiencing this like stuff that I'm not, I'm not supposed to see. But, yeah, it was really, really bad special effects. <laughs> now, the way this film was sort of set up is it's presented by Dr. Gross. Right. Who's taking you through all of these different instances of death as he's researching... I don't remember what he was researching. It's some goofy thing. But I don't know if this started that tradition of having the the sort of pseudo-intellectual fake narrator or right. if that was something that carried over from the Mondo, Mondo Kane, Mondo cinema that came before Faces of Death. Yeah, but he was it just certainly an actor. continued afterwards. Yeah, he's just an actor. His name was like what? Michael Carr? Yeah, I think it was Michael Carr, yeah. Yeah, I, I think he was in – he's got a lot of stuff on his IMDb. A lot of, like, 1950s science fiction stuff and all that. Right. But I I just remember, like, the opening scene is like, hello, I'm Dr. Gross. And he's got these, like, really (laughs) ill-fitting glasses. Like, they were lopsided and stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we're like, as a kid, like, Dr. Gross, that's kind of right on the nose. Like, not picking up on the fact that it is, like, way too right on the nose. Yes. Was it Faces of Death 1 or Faces of Death 2 with a two- like animal control guys in Florida get eaten by the alligator. Um, I think that was. I, I don't remember. I remember there was one where there was like a parachute guy that like landed in an alligator pit. Yeah, that I, was two. Yeah, you just hear you just hear the guy <laughs> off camera. Look what they're doing! To him. <laughs> I feel bad laughing about that now, but it was it's so it's so dumb. Yeah, um, these sort of did set the stage, I think, for. What you could end up seeing, especially as the VHS revolution took over in the early 1980s. Right. So not just Faces of Death and Faces of Death. I think Faces of Death 2 came out before that revolution happened. Uh-huh. But there were dozens upon dozens upon dozens of films like this that we dropped into the horror movie section of your local video store. Right. You know, where people would unawares might pick it up while they pick up. You know, a copy of Halloween. Oh, let's watch something spooky. And all of a sudden, they're watching people beat up a rubber monkey head. <laughs> you know? And they're like, 
all of a sudden the special effects in Halloween look much better. Right. Yeah. All right. That's dark enough for now. Let's move on. Uh, November 11th, 1976, rock band Kiss, a frequent guest on our show, and at least in uh, terminology, released their album Rock and Roll Over, which is still my favorite of their early output, uh, partly because of how awesome the cover is, which is this great circular drawn cover of the band with a bunch of lightning bolts. Uh-huh. And it was the first album I was ever gifted uh, with my very first record player when I was a little kid. Huh. I love Rock and Roll Over. I think at that point they had kind of like... Almost peaked. I think they peaked with Love Gun. So the album before was Destroyer, and Destroyer was produced by Bob Ezrin, who overproduced the hell out of Destroyer. So Rock and Roll Over was more of a traditional rock album. Yes. I remember reading or listening to interviews that Peter and Ace hated working with Bob Ezrin because... He would wear a, a whistle around his neck and boss everybody around the studio. And, you know, they're all like, that's not rock and roll. So whenever they did rock and roll over, it was a more of a traditional rock and roll, just call back to, you know, strip down real easy stuff. There's only a couple of singles off this record, right? Calling Dr. Love and Hard Luck Woman. I yeah, I think, think those are any... the only two singles. I mean, there's right. a lot of songs on here that would be played live. Uh, mm-hmm. Ladies' room was. Uh, I love that song. Yeah, that's a oh, great. Meet, meet you in the ladies' room. Yep. Yeah, that's good too. Making love was another one. One of my favorite Kiss songs on here never made it to any live sets that I'm aware of. It's a song called Mister Speed. It's such a great mm-hmm. song. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really overlooked Kiss song. There was a cover song uh, available, and I don't remember who was in the video. It's like a bunch of guys from a bunch of different bands. But they all wear, wore ski masks of their respective Kiss compadre or whatever. Oh. And all that. So the drummer was wearing the ski mask of Peter Chris, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I remember the drummer was Charlie Benetti from Anthrax, but I don't remember who the other guys were. And they did a cover of Mr. Speed, and it's freaking amazing and creepy because of those ski masks. Yeah, I'll have to look for the video. That's a, that's definitely something I would I would want to seek out now. Yeah. Um, this record has my favorite. Of all Kiss songs on it, Hard Luck Woman. That's, I think, Paul Stanley at his best, writing for somebody who's not in the band and then right. having to do it in the band. So Yeah, he wrote that song. Specifically, he, he daydreamed about it being recorded by Rod Stewart, and Rod Stewart wasn't interested. So they had Peter sing it because they were coming off the success of Beth from the last album. And Peter and Rod Stewart have very similar voices. They have that kind of like gravelly, I need a lost age. Yeah. They absolutely do, and almost astonishing how it's easy to mentally map Rod Stewart's voice onto this song when Peter Chris is singing it. That's how close their voices are. Yep. So there was a Kiss tribute album called Kiss My Ass. Yep. Goth Brooks does a countryed-up version of Hard Luck Woman that's actually really, really good, and they performed it on I want to say it was Jay Leno because I think Jay Leno was a big Kiss fan they performed it on Jay Leno and it was Kiss with Goth Brooks mm-hmm. so like uh, the four guys from Kiss at that time which was I think it was Eric Singer and Bruce Kulick and then uh, Paul and Gene and Goth Brooks it's actually a really mm-hmm. cool cover yeah it's it's all over YouTube it's easy to it's kind of easy to find it all right uh, November <laughs> November the 12th Jeff <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, did you ever spill something and need to clean it up, Bill? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Um, <laughs> so on November the 12th of 19... <laughs> I can't get this out. November the 12th of 1970, the Oregon Highway Division uses a half a ton of dynamite to blow up the carcass <laughs> of a... <laughs> to blow up the carcass of a beached whale. Now, whales, when they die, uh, like a lot of other not just whales, mammals in general, Uh, when they start to decompose, they build up gas inside and they begin to swell. Uh, And that's what this whale was doing. So they used, uh, uh, like I just said, a half a ton of dynamite to blow up this whale and mix in with the methane gas that was already swelling inside the body of said decomposing whale. When it was ignited, it blew up 
everywhere and just whale body parts just rain down across the beach with chunks of whale hitting, this is so gross hitting spectators and even destroying a parked car a cadillac cadillac just got yeah. like smacked with like a, a, a whale intestine or whatever what I love the most about this story, one, is that I've wa- I watched it happen. The video is available to, <laughs> yeah, to be enjoyed. I, I watched uh, it while we were prepping the show, which is why I can't stop laughing. And I have to wonder, like, what was the thought process behind coming up with this plan to get rid of <laughs> that whale carcass? No like, kidding. Like, who, nobody had a who, tractor. <laughs> well, that's what I'm thinking. Like, look, it's going to take a couple of days to get Bob down here with the backhoe and the bulldozer, and we're going to have to close the beach. You got that brother-in-law still got that 200, you know, 250 pounds of dynamite in his, in his shed that he's not supposed to have? Well, get him down here. You know, if we can't bury it, we'll blow it up. Right. I, I don't know what the plan was. It was the expectation that they would blow it gently up and into the ocean where it would float away. Would it atomize? Did so, they think it, the whale was like a firecracker? You know? So here's my thoughts, okay? You and I both grew up in New Bedford. Not that I've ever seen a whale uh, outside of the Whaling Museum, but, I mean, whales are pretty commonplace in the, uh, at least in the zeitgeist, okay? This is Oregon. You know, I don't know what the whale population of Oregon is, but I don't think it's anything close to what we have. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're they're the Pacific Northwest, so... The Pacific. Yeah. They're, it's not like Montana. Like whales don't wash up on <laughs> in the shores of Idaho. I realize that know? they're on the Kansas. They're on the coast, but it's, it probably wasn't like a sperm whale. You know what I mean? It probably wasn't a big ass whale like we would have. Well, I, again, I, I don't know. I, I like to think of all whales as what we in the in the uh, the whale Moby Dick enjoying community describe as very, very large. Yeah, animals. So whether it was a blue whale or a right whale, I think which of the right whales are kind of the smaller ones. Yep. It's still a thousand pounds of t- TNT. A thousand pounds of TNT, Bill. There's a, a lot of pounds of TNT. The other thing is, like I said, it rained down just whale on all these spectators that were watching it. Can you just imagine the smell? Oh, I can't even. Okay, I can't even. Because whales even don't smell great. In their natural environment, okay? A rotting carcass and the insides of anything stink, you know? Oh, my God. That that probably still smells on that beach. There must be a sign. I bet. I bet. it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a sign there that says, here the, the you know, five dumbest people in town were <laughs> tasked with removing a whale carcass from the beach and decided to do it with high explosives. That is never washing out. That is never, ever going to wash right, you're out. Gonna, you're definitely going to need some new clothes. And I'll, uh, you're, Somebody get me some tomato juice. We're going to need a load of tomato juice to get the smell off of us. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up the week. November 13th, 1875. The very first football game with uniforms takes place in a game between Yale and Harvard. Now you may be asking yourself, Jeff, or Jeff? listener... <laughs> Uh, if this is the first football game with uniforms and it's 1875, what were they wearing before? Yeah, I got a lot of questions. Like, um, I, I bet you yeah, do. I don't know if they're going to do like shirts and skins like you do in, in basketball. I think you would get a lot of uh, a lot of road rash or uh, grass they, rash. Well, he's throwing he's he's the foul flag. It's, uh, yeah. it's uh, Johnson has pinched the nipples of the defensive coordinator. He's also, he's also bleeding to death because he went, you know, just got tackled. But now you're saying 1875. Yeah. This must have been soccer. You, you know, know the same football, I, but it must have been soccer. I went back and dug around, and I, I'm not sure if it's football, American football, or what would become American football, or some amalgamation. Mm-hmm. Or if it was soccer, football, European football. Right. Can't find the answer in my extensive 10 minutes of research. But right. American football is more like turn of the century, isn't it? Like late 18s into the... Yeah, there's about 20 more years before the rules for American football start to solidify into the game that we recognize today with things like forward passing and and you know the, the change of the defensive team for the offensive team and structured quarters and all those things that came after like right 1895 1897 something like that sure so up until then though there was a there are amalgamations of rugby and soccer and 
some of the rules from one and some of the rules from the other that were together and it just didn't hadn't been solidified yet. So I, I'm not sure if this meant, you know, guys running around in shorts and the equivalent of cleats in eighteen seventy five, which are probably just shoes, or if it meant that they had on sweaters and, and sort of long pants and before uniforms, you'd, yeah, you'd have to memorize who's on whose team. It must have been right. I mean, I guess if you're playing, it's bit pretty easy because you're like, oh, hi, Bob, you know, right, and hi, guy that I don't know from Harvard. But right, you know, if you're a spectator, you probably didn't know what the hell was going on. My guess is that it was probably closer to American football, only because it would have been almost impossible to watch if people didn't have uniform clothes on. And I say this as someone who played on a bunch of recreational soccer teams. Yeah. Nothing was worse than having someone from the other team show up in your color. <laughs> and it happens all the time. Right. They bring the wrong color shirt. And it's like, oh, jeez. And you inevitably accidentally pass to them. And if you're a spectator trying to figure out who the hell is playing and, and, and who, and everybody's wearing different clothes, like, I don't know that you could. Whereas in football, because the game is more linear and paced, yep. you might be able to watch it and figure out what's going on. It's just going to take watching it really closely. And at the time in 1875, college football was humongously popular. We didn't have professional football leagues yet. So this is as close as you got was college. And the thing that makes this possible to be uh, a foundational part of the game is that now I think that the people who report on the football game can understand better of what's going on, can identify by number who's on which team, can identify which team is moving up and down the field based just on the color of their jerseys. Now, and their my, pants. My last bit of uh, uh, info on this, I'm looking. The score was four to nothing, which is what makes me think it's probably closer to soccer because the only way to get the score of four in American football would be two safeties, which I doubt. Right. And that's, but I mean, that's considered, that's using rules after 1890 uh, something. Okay. So it's entirely possible that they, it was a single point. To cross the touchdown line, assuming that's what they called it at the time. Again, I don't, I don't know for sure, for sure what rules these games were played by. All right, my rule is time for celebrity birthdays. All right, so uh, my stance whenever we started the show has always been that we focus on good news, uh, no negativity, and definitely no politics. So. Watch how gingerly we skate around somebody who actually had a pretty tragic life. So. On November the 7th, 1964, uh, American actress Dana Plato, who played Kimberly on the TV show Different Strokes. For my tween years, I guess, she was kind of America's sweetheart on TV. Yeah, a uh, very pretty young actress. So she was on that show for, wow, like eight years, 78 to 86. She was also, here's a fun trivia question, one of the first celebrities to star in a video game. Yes. Yep. Yes, she, she was. Yeah, in she was that, in a video game called Night Trap for the Sega CD. For the Sega CD. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't remember that if they digitized her or they inserted like video footage into the gameplay. I, I've watched gameplay videos of that once or twice, but I can't remember how it, okay, how so it worked. Okay, so our friend, our mutual friend Jim had the, the Sega CD before I did, and then I got it. And then he got Night Trap, and he was like, dude, do not get this game. It is the absolute worst game. But it had full motion video, which was like really exciting to me. So I bought Night Trap and holy hell, that game sucks canal water. And it was actually like controversial. And I think it was even taken off the shelves at one point because it was deemed to be too violent. Yeah, there's a lot of like implied violence, but there's actually no violence whatsoever. Yeah. I don't know. Video games from that time period are strange animals. Yep. Uh, Dana Plato left the world far too soon in 1999 and... Uh, yeah, tough life, but she'll never she'll always be our Kimberly Drummond. See that? Good news, guys. All right, next up, November eighth, eighteen forty seven. Writer Bram Stoker, an Irish guy, also was a theater manager, and authored the book Dracula, the mm. story that modernized and set the bar for all vampire fiction to come afterwards. Right. I did the audio book, and we talked about this on a much earlier show. I did the audio book, because I don't have time to read, of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, and I really liked it. I I loved the very, it had a very interesting narration where it was all a series of letters. Yes, I thoroughly enjoyed that book. Now, you're going to know more about this than I do, because I'm not as uh, well-read as you. 
I'm going to assume that Bram Stoker has other books besides Dracula. Yeah, he wrote a couple of different books uh, after Dracula. He wrote The Lady of the Shroud, uh, which I've never read, and uh, The Lair of the White Worm, which I haven't read, but I've seen the film version of. Oh, okay. There's some other stuff, some, some short pieces and essays and stuff. Cool. But nowhere near were those as popular as Dracula. You know, probably best known for the... Probably best known for suing F.W. Murnau for making an unauthorized version of Dracula. Right. Well, that was his estate. That wasn't him. He was probably dead by then, I think, right? Yeah, he was dead a few years earlier than that. All right. Moving on. November the 9th, 1934, original host of the PBS show Cosmos, Carl Sagan, who inspired Neil deGrasse Tyson, who now inspires the world. Yes, uh, Sagan was super inspirational. Cosmos was a great show on PBS. He also talked on a lot of like public TV shows. I don't yeah. know if that's the right phrase, talk shows. Yeah. But news programs and chat programs and other things about the importance of science and ecology and, and looking to the universe and, and thinking about where we are. He is responsible for the, the naming of the pale blue dot photo yep. that has sort of revolutionized the way that humans see their place in the solar system. And like Neil deGrasse Tyson after him, Carl Sagan had a very excellent way of taking unbelievably complex subject matter and wording it in such a way that you can understand. Yes, he made it accessible. All right, next up. November 10th, 1960, uh, British writer Neil Gaiman, probably best known for the DC slash Dark Horse comic series Sandman. Oh, yeah. Recently adapted uh, on one of the streaming services. But he also wrote for Miracle Man, which is my favorite comic. He wrote the last few episodes of issues of that up. And he's he's written a bunch of books, including stuff that's been made into films like Coraline. Oh, I didn't realize he and, wrote that. Yep, he wrote Coraline. He, he also wrote the book uh, Good Omens, which is was also made into a, a, a series for, on one of the streaming services where an angel and a demon sort of pair up together to solve crimes. Oh. They, they don't actually solve crimes. I just actually, like you just mentioned Coraline, and I was just listening to a podcast where they were talking about the uh, the story of Coraline before it was adopted to a movie, and it was really interesting that children that read the story found it endearing and, and fun, and adults that read it found it disturbing and terrifying. Yeah, the quality of his writing comes through in a quote like that. So he really has a different impact based on the audience that's reading his work. He's an interesting guy. He's really interesting to listen to uh, when he speaks as well. All right, moving on to November the 11th, 1948. A man whose name you might not recognize, but oh God, you're going to recognize his face. Vincent (laughs) Chiavelli. Am I saying that right? He looks like a horse with a Larry Fine afro. Yeah. What I always think of when I think. I mean, I always... I always knew him as that ugly guy. Um, <laughs> so he was the man with the sad eyes, uh, the first recurring gay character on a network American TV show, a TV show called The Corner Bar, which I don't remember at all. I, th- I think it was like, well, it's 19, I got it over here. It's 1972. So I would have been like in diapers. I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't. I don't remember it either. Uh, but if, um. if everybody's still like, who the hell are you guys talking about? He was, in among other things, he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He was the science teacher in who just switched over to Sanka in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He was Mr. Vargas, the biology teacher. He was the homeless ghost in Ghost. Mm-hmm. He yeah. was the uh, the math teacher in Better Off Dead. Yeah. Hey, uh, you don't mind if I take her out for a day, do you? <laughs> He's got a very distinct look. You know who he is the second you see him. Even though he's got a very unusual look, he's always a very likable uh, very likable character. Mm-hmm. Seems like a cool guy. He has a notable voice, too, which is uh-huh. it's difficult to forget it once you've heard it. And I spotted him in the movie American Pop, in which he was just rotoscoped in. Oh, wow. As, like, another character. And I thought, oh, I, I know that guy. That's the guy from Better Off Dead. Yeah. It's Vincent Chiavelli. Moving on. November 12th, 1970. Figure skater, <laughs> Tanya Harding. More infamous now than famous. Yeah. Although she's played by Margot Robbie in I, Tanya, which right. sort of looked at path her life took up until the fateful knee whacking coming up to, the, was it the 96 Olympics? Yeah, I think it was 96. Yeah. Yeah. She had a, a rivalry with Nancy Kerrigan and then she and her boyfriend kind of like got this plan to 
take Nancy Kerrigan out of the game by whacking her in the knee with an asp. As with many plans that seem like they come off the back of a Bazooka Joe comic, <laughs> this one went about as well as one that would have come off the back of a Bazooka Joe comic. She, Tanya lost her ability to skate professionally in like all the associations and I think she still skated though because I remember she like messed up and she asked the judges if she could start over and people were like this girl's lost her her mind you can't start over yeah I don't remember the detail I do remember that it was it was the knee whacking that was all over the news to the point where it saturated my brain so much that I just stopped paying attention yeah, that was a big-ass story, and uh, and it would have been the perfect ending if Nancy Kerrigan won the gold anyway, but she didn't. She got the silver. And then wrapping up the birthdays, November the 13th, 1934, American television producer Gary Marshall, who is the father of Penny Marshall, who you would know as Laverne from Laverne and Shirley. Gary Marshall, not just a producer, he was also a director and a writer, He was responsible for the Dick Van Dyke show, The Odd Couple, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He he also sometimes showed up in programs, not necessarily the ones that he produced, but ones where Penny Marshall was uh, a character or a a player. Yeah. uh, Later on, he was making movies. He made Pretty Woman with Julia Roberts. You may not know his face, but you definitely know his work. That's for sure. Right. One thing he does not have in his writing credits is he has never uh, written the worst song ever. All right, young Jeffrey, what do we have in the canon for this week's worst song ever? In the canon this week, we have a band that started in the early 1970s and fell into sort of the American hard rock scene, defined some of it, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, as far as fame goes and set a lot of standards for bands that would follow. And then due to lineup changes and other things, sort of disappeared in the early 1980s. But their singer at the time carried on making the most boring, bland, and nutless adult contemporary pop music in the history of the world. So you're talking about the Doobie Brothers. I indeed am. Who, by and large are kind of badass. You know, I was listening to, in preparation for the show, I was listening to some Doobie Brothers today, and that song, China Grove? Yeah. Wow, what a freaking guitar riff. What a great song. Yeah, But the ab- song. The absolute worst songs in their catalog are all sung by your friend and mine and topic of this week's worst song ever, Michael McDonald. Michael McDonald. Yes, and he joined the Doobie Brothers after their original singer, sort of had some health issues that dropped him out of the band in like 1977 or so. Uh-huh. But the song it's specifically that we are talking about is the uh, mid-80s uh, adult contemporary classic. I keep forgetting. We're not in love anymore. Oh, oh, it, it oh, is... oh, hold on. Let's play the clip. Let's get this out of the okay. way. My God, I don't know what's worse, his singing or your impersonation of his singing. It's it's comparable. <laughs> this guy sings, dude. I'm listening to it today. I was like, this guy sings like he doesn't have the ability to make hard consonant sounds. It's all... <laughs> That's a super duper apt description. Can't argue with that at all. Yeah. Aside from the song being like synthesizer heavy, it's horrifically overproduced. The lyrics are stupid and... I don't know who the audience for it is. The song still went to number one. Yeah, this is that so adult contemporary that we we return to over and over again. It's like, you know who likes this? Your mom. But like, if you put your brain to it, right? We are now at the age that the target audience of this song was for. You know, this was for parents. And guess what? This song sucks canal water from from this standpoint. Yeah. Not only is it not a good song, but it makes me feel bad for the rest of the Doobie Brothers. And and <laughs> McDonald still sings for them. They still tour and play. 
But they toured with a bunch of bands who went through that same evolution. So they had a, a really good hard rocky early time in their history. Like Chicago was like that too. Right. And then Terry Kath died and Peter Terrible took over the band and the horn section is gone and they're doing like soft rock. Right. The Eagles kind of did that too, although the Eagles were always softer. They sure. brought Joe Walsh in the, into the band for, for Hotel California, but then he split and Joe Walsh kind of softened up and the Eagles got super soft. And then once you got to the 80s, you got like Glenn Fry's solo stuff. Ugh. Don Henley. Ugh. It's all just floofy. There's yeah. nothing going on with it, you know? None of the links back to what made the early music so fun and exciting is there anymore. The thing, too, with, like, the Doobie Brothers is, you know, they're an American rock band from the 70s. Uh, there was a lot of, like, black and urban influences in the music at that time. And you can hear it. You can hear it in the Doobie Brothers. Oh, yeah. Their bass players definitely. definitely inspired by a lot of, you know, uh, funk and There's black artists and stuff like that. A ton of funk like in there, yep. Yeah. And then... You know, here comes Michael McDonald in his solo career, and it's like, all right, you could just hear the producer. Let's imagine this. Let's imagine this, Mike, okay? We're going to take Doobie Brothers music, but remove all of the black and urban influence we can, and we're right. just going to make this as white as possible. What do you and, think, and, Mike? And, and Mike goes, and I think that's a yes. I'm not sure. It's also the style of song that would be their the Doobie Brothers' only number one hit, which is the execrable <laughs> 1980 or so, What a Fool Believes. Yeah, that's another Michael McDonald's vocal one. What a Believes. It definitely is. And that's where the Doobie Brothers fall into the back as his kind of backup band. Do you think they like threw him out of the band? It's like, yeah, guys, I we told Mike that he had to leave. How did he take it? Well, he went, I think that means okay. I'm not sure. I never understood two words that guy says. I don't know if it was like that. From what I've read, the members of the band went off and did a bunch of session work for other musicians. And uh -huh. there were shakeups with things like the guys from Steely Dan, another future representative here on The Worst Song Ever. Yeah, I think McDonald's um, sang for Steely Dan for a bit too, yeah. As those bands sort of fell apart and... British New Wave and hip-hop started and heavy metal became a thing. And all of these things were happening around MTV time. Right. And the Doobie Brothers like the Eagles and like Grand Funk Railroad and a ton of other hard rock American bands like Montrose, etc. They were just a little bit too early for MTV. Right. And by the time they started to catch up to what MTV was doing, MTV had moved on. So yeah, what was left was that weird strata of like the between 8 p.m. and like 9.30 p.m. on MTV when they showed videos for the kids' parents. We talk about the comet all the time, the comet of Nirvana that destroyed heavy metal. But prior to that comet, there was the rocket of MTV, which destroyed arena rock, which is what the Doobie Brothers were. So I had said before that, you know, the Doobie Brothers had a lot of black and urban influences going into their music. Now, I remember Michael McDonald for another really bad song <laughs> that he that he had his fingers in anyway, a song called Yamo Be There, right? Now, yeah, I remember that song. I was like, that's, that's, I'm thinking of myself today, I'm like, that's Michael McDonald, isn't it, right? I go over to the Google and I just, you know, I, I go, hey, Google, who sang Yamo Be There? And she tells me James Ingram. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. All this time, I thought that was Michael McDonald and some other dingling that sings like that. But no, uh, it's James Ingram and Michael McDonald, which I think probably what happened was, considering the way MTV was so segregated at that time, because this is 1983, he probably has this song called Yamo Be There. And they're like, yeah, this is probably a little too urban sounding for MTV. Let's get the whitest man we can find. And here comes Michael McDonald, who looks like his hair and beard are the exact same length, like he got it done with a Floby or something. And he looks like he looks like a dollar store Kenny Rogers. Yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. Wish.com Kenny Rogers, right. And also Yamo B there works perfectly with Michael McDonald's I don't want to make fun of somebody who apparently has a speech impediment, but <laughs> that sounds like perfect. For, it's probably called something else. But Michael right. McDonald is just going, Yambo Bida. What are you saying? Yambo Bida. Like, I am Groot. Yambo Bida. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't love that song either. That that falls into the the cat the no no category for me of like incredibly white dudes who do Caribbean or, or West, white. West West Indian song. Yeah, well, I, again, but I'm talking about the Michael McDonald part. Like, yeah, Michael McDonald was white enough for the both of them. Yeah. Don't sing in pigeon. Just don't do it. Yeah. You know what you do? You say like, you know what? I've got enough money. I'm gonna go sing a different song. <laughs> I'm not gonna do this one. You're on your own, James. The Pipkins yeah. show up with their uh, "Give Me That Ding" and they're like, "Michael, don't do it! Don't do it!" <laughs> Why don't you ask Christopher Cross? He's kind of scrounging. It's like 1983. <laughs> he hasn't had a hit in a while. Didn't he work with him too? He did, yeah. And Kenny Loggins and uh, again, all the people that sort of couldn't make it over the transom into the MTV years. Why does everybody call this guy? This guy sings like he's got marshmallow maybe, stuff look, in his mouth. Maybe, maybe he's wicked nice. Could maybe be. like he's like give you the shirt off his back. That Michael McDonald, he's a great dude. It works for I scale. Him, I asked him just to just to listen to my record, and then he sang on it. And now yeah. it sounds like terrible, but you know he put in all kinds of time. Maybe he works for really cheap. Like we were gonna get the I gets, but we didn't have the dollar twenty five an hour to spend right. on. <laughs> right. I just asked him what he was doing. He said, yeah, I'm going to be there. And I thought, I don't know what that means. But then he was at my house. <laughs> he just showed up. I think he brought pizza. I'm not sure. All right. Before we wrap up the show, young Jeff. Uh-oh. Yep. I have the very popular and always well-received trivia question. I asked, I asked you a question at the beginning of the Did. show, Jeff. I asked you the bird, which is the logo and... I guess mascot for Twitter has a name. What is our friend the bird of Twitter? One who tweets. What is his name? Uh, it's not. I'm not going to ask this as a question because it's not Jeopardy. I have no idea. Therefore, I will say Tweety. That is a horrible guess. The bird's name is Larry. Larry Bird. Number 33 from the Boston Celtics, Hall of Fame basketball player. There's a thing I didn't know until just now. (laughs) I I couldn't have got that if there was money riding on it, just so you know. That was a good trivia question. Yeah. Whenever they said Larry, I was like, Larry Bird, really, guys? Really? You're going to go that on the nose? But there it is. Yep. Hall of Fame basketball player, Larry Bird. The Twitter bird is named after him. So that's a thing. If I ever start a communications platform that ultimately ends up with a billion users on it and it has a little animal for its mascot i will name it bill with one out. mugsy bogues <laughs> <laughs> all right but that is gonna wrap up the show for this week we will see you back here in seven days say good night jeff good night jeff bye everybody. Bye. bye guys a special shout out to james costa for our theme music thank you for listening to twibbly or this week was way better last year You can find us or message us over at Facebook or Instagram. Just look for Twibbly. That's T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Remember, Robert Hayes from Airplane listens to Twibbly. And I heard he got George Zip to subscribe after Macho Grande.